as our, our children leave, um, I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Not sure how you um, feel emotionally about the last 35 minutes, but that was pretty overwhelming um, to my soul. You know, I, I, I firmly believe with all my heart that the, the one thing that consumes us from the inside out and changes us is a close encounter with the greatness of God. In fact, as we were singing that last song, it, um, this image came to my mind of, of standing in New York. Uh, this is back in the 80s before the trade towers ever fell. And, and I remember standing next to the buildings and I looked up and if you stand right next to a high rise, you just can't see the top. And um, that to me is a bit like what God says. It says, you want to see how high my love is, just look up. And you just can't see the end of it. And to be overwhelmed and experience the greatness and the gracious and merciful character of God's love changes the soul from the inside out. It's the most important thing we can do is to, to revel in it each day. And uh, that will change you. I know it will change you. It's changed me and it's changed many others. Well, um, last week and this week, we are, are looking at how God, as he transforms us and consumes us from the inside out, how he is called us to work out that grace and, and to labor in grace and to minister in grace and serve in grace. And this morning is, is part two. It's just two parts of that, what it means to serve um, faithfully in the grace that God has given to us. Um, but I want to begin by just telling you um, or giving to you an observation from my life at least the first 20 years of it, um, from zero to 20, from the moment I was born to the, to the day that I, I drove away from Camp Pendleton. Uh, one of the things that I, I see in that first 20 years of my life is I see four people who, more than anybody else, impacted and changed me. There were lots of people who, who impacted my life personally, but there were four that stand out more than anybody else. And of course, the first two were my parents. You'd expect me to say that, but they are without question the two most influential people in my life and still are very influential in my life. So that's a given. But the third person that the Lord used graciously in my life uh, was a school teacher who taught in a public high school. Um, a man who loved his profession he loved the content of his teaching. Uh, he loved us as students and genuinely cared about the well-being of each of us. And uh, I was so compelled by his ministry to me as a high school student that I felt compelled to just write him a letter and just tell him, hey, listen, I just wanted you to know that of all the people that have impacted my life, you're one of the top five. And um, I am to this day deeply grateful for that man and how he impacted me. Um, and then the fourth person, and I think I've shared this before, but I've shared it again for the sake of the point I'm about to make, um, was a, a, a Marine that came to my unit. Um, I was there first, and he later came. And he was not only an excellent Marine, attention to detail, great integrity, um, loved his job, um, was always there, always reliable, never complained. Um, but even better than being a fine Marine, he was a fine Christian and had a humble heart. You never heard him uh, talk about somebody else. Uh, he, he did well at what he did, and, and he loved Christ, and he's the one that brought me back to church. And so those four people, mom, a dad, a school teacher, and, um, and a Marine. Now, the reason I bring all those four up, the four most influential people in my first 20 years, 
was because of who they were not and where they served. That none of them were pastors. Uh, in fact, none of them, except my father, had any formal biblical training. They were just living out their Christianity in ordinary settings of life. And they changed me. So they were not pastors, but also where they changed me. It was in the context of a home, in the context of a classroom, and in the context of barracks. None of that took place in the confines of a church. So the people who impacted my life more than anybody else in the first 20 years were not pastors, and the place where I was impacted the most was not in a church. Now, I don't say that to diminish the effectiveness or the impact of a church body or its established ministries. But I do say that to show you, hopefully, and explain that church and the established ministries of the church are just a small portion of how and where God works. And that God works, at least, unless you're a vocational pastor like me, Dan Overby, John, and Tony, then the majority of where God is going to work in your life is in the ordinary settings of where you live and where you work. And it's there that you're going to touch people's lives and people like me are going to be changed. And that's really the whole purpose of this particular series of messages is on the negative side, what I want to do with the Bible is I want to shatter an overly narrow understanding as to what constitutes authentic, world-changing, transforming service, ministry, and labor for Christ that cripples us as a body and minimizes our impact on the world. I want to I break that and widen it so that you see that I serve Christ as a, as a plumber or as somebody who teaches wood shop or somebody who makes fries at In-N-Out Burger that that is a place where God has given you to serve with all of your might for his sake and to touch people's lives. And that, that's the positive side of it, is to see where you are, where you spend 97, 98% of your life as the place God has called you to serve and make a difference. And if that isn't primarily in a place like this, then that's okay, because that's where God have, has you. Now, in part, part one of the message last week, um, basically, we, we outlined two what we will call principles of faithfulness. Um, and I'm going to add to those two principles, but if, if you weren't here, this is basically the first two. was basically serve Christ in all facets of your life. There is no compartment of life where he should not be the primary unifying purpose of your existence. Um, part two was serve Christ where God has already placed you. And we looked at the instructions that Paul gave to the slave um, who had no personal legal rights, was possession of another person. And Paul basically said, hey, listen, stay there as a slave and serve Christ there in the menial tasks of cleaning or whatever you do. Just serve him there, which is, I think, in terms of application for us, as I brought out last week, instead of thinking of serving Christ as something in addition to or outside of what you already do, recognize you're already in a place where you're supposed to serve. Just simply serve and be faithful where you are, driving a squad car or whatever it is. Now, I want to add to those two, but if in greater detail, because um, we might ask ourselves, okay, given my profession, my vocation, what exactly does faithfulness look like when it comes to the nitty-gritty? So I want to take you back to this passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And I'm going to read it for us here, and then I'm only going to add two more um, principles or truths or applications as to how to be faithful where God has called you. 
Beginning in verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive, by the way, notice how he takes us to the future, futures and everything, the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there will be no partiality. Now, what I want to draw out for you, um, point number three, um, in regards to what it looks like and means to be faithful in your context. And actually, I want to back up, and I, I need to make a clarification here, because there is a difference, an obvious difference that probably simply needs to be stated between the slave of Paul's day and those of us who live and work in a free society. Uh, the, The slave that Paul is addressing here had little choice. He was, in a manner of speaking, stuck in the position he was in. Very few, in terms of percentage, actually were able to purchase their own freedom. So he couldn't change his, his status, his station of life. Whereas in the 21st century, in a free society, um, you are not stuck, so to speak. I mean, we can make choices and we can make changes to the benefit of our family, or if we discern that we'd better serve Christ in a different profession or vocation, we can make those changes. So there are differences between the slave's position and our context that need to be kept in mind when applying this. But there are also similarities, because the slave like all of us, had meaningful work to do. Everybody here has meaningful work that you do, whether it's at home or it's in your office or it's out fixing something. All of us have meaningful work to do as the slave had meaningful work to do. And all of us, just like the slave, are under someone's authority, either directly or indirectly. Either you answer to a boss, a project manager, um, or... If you don't, maybe you answer to a board of elders or you answer to a board of trustees. And if you don't answer to them, then you certainly answer to local, state, and federal governments. So all of us work under authority. So now back to the question. What does it mean, according to this passage, to serve Christ where he has placed us faithfully? Principle number three is this. Serve Christ with comprehensive obedience to those in authority over you. That is stated as clearly as can be stated in verse 22, when he says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. You get that obey in everything, and he doesn't give exception or qualification. In other words, what he's instructing the slave to do, and I believe by way of application, those of us who work under authority is to do your job, to fulfill the expectations of those over you, your job requirements, or to use military language, follow the orders to the fullest extent. So if you work at Starbucks, the manager asks you to do something you may not want to do, or you may think is inefficient, do it anyway. And do it with a good attitude, not begrudgingly, not being cantankerous, but simply Offer up submission to that authority and do your job. 
If you work for a, for a department manager at Walmart and he asks you to clean the bathrooms and you don't want to, do it anyway. That's Paul's instruction right here when he says, slaves obey in everything your earthly masters or those in authority over you. Now, I think it doesn't need to be stated, but I will state it anyway that the only time that we shouldn't obey is when what we're told to do is in conflict with the teachings and authorities of Jesus, authority of Jesus because he sits far higher than any earthly master. So if your, your, your employer wants you to lie or tweak the truth, then we, in allegiance and loyalty to Christ, must disregard that order respectfully and then take the consequences for our faithful disobedience. Now that sounds easy enough in terms of just do your job. But in a culture, you know that this is, this is true, in a culture where everyone wants to be a chief and no one wants to be an Indian, where people want to be in authority, not under authority, where people want to supervise, not submit, this teaching, I think, is potent and relevant. This whole idea of sub submission, of following. Because one of the, the idolatries, that's, that means idolatry is basically worshiping something that isn't God, making something more important than it should be. One of the embedded subterranean idolatries of our culture is the idolatry or the worship of power, position, or let's call it leadership. And you might say, no, that's not true. But listen, I have never heard in my life a parent say of their child, my Johnny is doing so well, I'm so proud of him. He's such a great follower. Now granted, we don't want our kids to follow bad influences, but that doesn't mean being a follower is a negative thing. And the reason we don't hear that is because being a follower does not impress what does impress is position, power, influence, and leadership. So you will often hear a parent say, I'm so proud of my son or daughter because they're such a leader. Now that's not to diminish the importance of the function of leadership, but it is to diminish our obsession and our worship of it. I mean, the Christian, when you stop and think about it, above all else, is defined as a follower. As one who has been overwhelmed by the mercy and the love and the grace of God, forgiven of all sins, and now submitting in faith and gladly following our leader. We are called followers of Christ. And I think the Lord is far more pleased and glorified when we joy in our following than when we glory in our leading. Then we back up even another step and realize that, that Jesus himself was the quintessential follower. Philippians 2 verse 6, it said that he did not record, regard equality with God, grasping for leadership, let's say, something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself, became a man, and took on the form of a servant. 
And in the form of the servant, he finished everything that the Father willed him to do. He said, it is finished. I have finished the job. And he did so with a joyful, willing, loving heart and attitude. So, backing up to the principle here, should it be any wonder that one of the marks of a Christian working in the workplace should be a joyful and glad submission to the Lord? or to our masters for the Lord, showing people the attitude that Christ had when he submitted to his authority, which was his father. Now, the point is simply, if you want to be a Christian that makes an impact where God has you, do your job. Submit to those over you, because that's a mark of a Christian. Don't do it with complaint. Don't be overly opinionated. Don't be belligerent. Just do your job. Does that mean you can't offer advice or input to those over you? No, when it's invited and if, it's, if there's an opening. But do it respectfully. Other than that, just simply do your job. And I guarantee you, if a person was simply to apply this first one, just simply do your job with a good attitude. And by the way, biblical obedience is never begrudging obedience. I mean... Grumpy obedience is gross obedience. It's not obedience. So we are to do our job, as our employer has stated us, to the best of our ability in submission to them with a good attitude. If you simply do that, you will mark yourself off as completely different than the rest of the group, the rest of the crew, the guys that are working in the office with you. You'll be altogether different and your light will shine. That's principle number three. And now four. Serve Christ with singular motivation to please him. That is, without a divided heart. That also comes to light in this particular passage. In verse 23, uh, excuse me, I think I need reading glasses, you know that? Just reading and realizing that middle of verse 22 and 23. After he tells us what to do, obeying in everything those who are your earthly masters, now he goes on to tell us how we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. There is a way we are not to serve, and there is a way we are to serve. There is a motivation that centers itself on people, and there is a motivation that centers itself on the Lord. Now, I'm going to go on to say that it's our motive of pleasing and bringing praise to the Lord that is to be the fundamental, singular motive of the Christian, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, whether he's making fries or whether he's teaching woodshop. But he does give us the negative, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And then in verse 23, he says, and not for men. This is a wrong way and a wrong reason for doing what you do. And Paul here is digging down into the marrow of what motivates. Why do you do what you do? What drives you? to work with your hands, to sit behind a counter of a bank. What is it that drives you? 
Because the Lord is not merely concerned with what you do. He's also concerned with why you do it. The motive behind the action. What is my purpose and why do I do what I do? And one of the strong and oftentimes subterranean motives that can capture the heart is a desire to have people notice you. That is, I think, what he has in mind here when he uses the word eye service and people pleasers is the kind of work that will, in its motive, want to attract attention and is therefore superficial and concerned with the appearances of work. That's eye service, to be seen. And this is, this is endemic and epidemic to the work world. It's like rising and lowering of tides. When the foreman steps on the scene, productivity levels go up. And when he drives off, things settle back down, the tide goes out, and everything settles back down to a comfortable, usually mediocrity kind of work level. Because they're trying to, in those moments, impress the boss, or trying not to get fired by the boss. Neither way, it is inconsistent and a conditional form of work. Now, I don't know if you've worked a government job before, and this isn't a, a negatory statement of all government jobs and so forth. I know there are guys who work for the government who work very hard, but I, I've worked two government jobs, one in the military and the other for, 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 for a school system. And I watched it. Boss comes, everybody jumps to, boss leaves, and everybody kind of sits back down, or at least relaxes, you know, holds shovels on the side of the road, that kind of a thing. The thing is, is if, if you're a Christian who, who does that, and you watch your work ebb and flow based upon who's seeing you and who's there, I think that what that tells you is your motivation is largely tied to who sees you. And that is a man-centered motive for work. One that's similar to that is pleasing people for the sake of what they can give you in return. And here we come to money or some kind of remuneration, which also is, in the world, what makes people work. So if it's a volunteer position, People will, generally speaking, not work as hard or consistently or feel like they can be late. Why? Because no dollar is tied to their work, service, or ministry. But the people who are paid work harder, and if you pay them more or promise them more, well, then they'll work even harder. And if that's the case for the Christian, where you're there primarily, fundamentally, because of the dollar, then that, too, is a man-centered, earthly motive. Jesus told us in no uncertain terms that money cannot be what you serve and at the same time minister to the Lord. You cannot serve, he says, Matthew 6, verse 24, both money and God. They are mutually exclusive. You'll serve the one and despise the other. Now, is money necessary? Is money good and a paycheck necessary in what you do? Absolutely. You can't live without it, but it's never to be the motive as to why you do what you do. Sadly enough, well, I'll just, I'll leave it there. 
I just believe that there is this, again, the idolatries of the world seep into the church, and so it's so easily easy for what motivates other people to do their labors to motivate us, be that pleasing people over us or be that more money. Same kind of motive can drive. But that's not to be what we're supposed to be driven by. Rather, that's the negative side, not as eye service or people pleasers, and certainly not for the sake of, of money. But he says, goes on to say the positive, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Fear being that reverent, overwhelming sense of awe at all that God is for us, both in terms of his power and love and wisdom and everything that he is. That he is the, he is the owner of all careers and vocations, and he is the, the master over all masters, that he sees not just in one little time and place, he sees everything that goes on and sees your labors, and he sees your heart. And for the Christian who has been overwhelmed by God's greatness and his love and his grace, there should be a reciprocal response of loving him in return and desiring to please the one who laid down his life for us so that he becomes the primary motive of, of your work and why you do what you do to, to please him and to praise him in your work. Now, what comes to mind when I think of how that works out on a psychological level is, is, is um, something I did for my father when I was probably seven or eight. He, drove, he would drive his little Mazda out to the edge of our, our um, driveway, and sometimes he'd say, man, I've got to cut down those weeds, because the weeds would grow up really high, and he couldn't see people coming down the, the, the road. And in an abnormal moment of love, or son, I decided, you know what, I'll go cut those weeds down. I said, it's abnormal, I didn't do this all the time, so don't think of me as some amazing son. I wasn't. But, so I, I went and I got this thing that my dad had to chop weeds down. That was before the weed eater days. And so it was a sickle. And I remember it was about a 100-yard stretch. And I went down the road. And I just kept sickling the, the, the weeds. And um, I had blisters on my hands when I was done. And I came back and my dad came out. And he said, you do this? I said, yep. He said, you want to go get some ice cream? And I said, yep. <laughs> I was always accepted by my father. But when you're accepted and loved by someone, it is a response of the loved to want to please the beloved. And when we know the love of Christ for us and it grows in our hearts and lives, there is a reciprocal response then to live for him in everything. And that is to be the motive of the Christian life. So whatever you do, you, you do it, and this is a kind of the benefit of it, is you do it holy and completely you give yourself to it which is why he says work heartily and other translations say give your whole heart to it in other words there's no such thing as half fast work there's no mediocre work the christian is to if he is to honor his lord in love he is to give himself fully and completely to the task at hand now you may never be the best at what you can do because other people are smarter or richer than you, but you can be or give the best that you have. My high school teacher that impacted me, I knew and we knew he wasn't there for the paycheck. He was there because he believed in what he did and he loved his students. Now he wouldn't have been able to be there if he didn't have the check, but that was not why he was there. And that's where he influenced me. The Marine was not 
motivated by the next promotion or the next stripe on his sleeve. He loved his job. He believed in his job. And he lived out his Christianity in his job. And there he made a difference. So the simple point of this to, to everyone in here, if you want to be a good steward, a faithful steward, a recipient and worker of grace and ministry and service, wherever God has placed you, do your job with a joyful heart. Do it for the Lord with everything you have. Be passionate about it and give yourself to it. And if, and if Christians in this room were to do that where God has placed them, then your light would shine, people would see your good works, and they would give glory to your Father in heaven. And you know what? The little Danny Deckards that are running around out there, you're going to touch their lives, and God is going to change people through you. So, church, family, my brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are, what you do for a living, whether you're stay-at-home or whether you work driving a truck. I pray that God would grant you the grace to see that, you know what? There is amazing opportunities for you to minister God's grace exactly where you're at if you do your job with a good attitude, passionately, for and to Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. You'll bring change into your workplace and you'll be an amazing minister of God. Somebody might say, you know what? As I look back over my life, four or five people come to mind and you're one of them. Because you were a simple Christian living out your Christianity in the ordinary settings of life. That's how Christians should live. Will you stand with me? And if you would, we're gonna, worship team's going to come up. If you would just hold out your hands like this. It's a sign of, of need. And uh, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we just come to you empty-handed and, and acknowledging that your grace is the only reason and way that we really change and that it's what motivates, it's what transforms it's will what, it, will, it is what will fill us this year, 2011, so that we can go into the places that we, we work and minister and live. And we just pray for the grace to, to live for you and to live for Christ, for his name, for his pleasure. Uh, give us the grace to be submissive and obedient, which is an unpopular word in our day, but it honors you. It shows trust in you. It shows allegiance and loyalty. Um, and so we pray, Lord, just give us the passion to do whatever you've given us with all our heart. Even if we don't necessarily like it, give us the heart and the passion to do it with all of our might because it is worship to you. So, Lord, we thank you. Give us a, a fruitful year this year in 2011 for your name's sake. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Let's stay standing for worship.